0: If you, are, oops, if you were here last week, you, will, you may remember, hopefully you remember my little illustration with the babushkas, the five Russian dolls, remember that? It was a way of illustrating that Jonah is a fantastic example of the different layers and levels of meaning that are in the Word of God. There were five dolls that I showed you and there are at least five levels of meaning within the story of Jonah. You see, at one level, it's a great story. It's a great story of a man and of a boat and of a fish and of a storm and of a city and of a king and, a, and all this stuff. It's a great story. But at another level, it's an allegory. It's a picture of us. We're all like Jonah. We've all been like Jonah, haven't we? Where we've God said something and we've said, nah, and we've run the opposite direction. It's also an allegory of the church. In one sense, it's like the church. God speaks to the church and the church would rather run away. But underneath that, the real hiddenness in this book is that it's ultimately an exploration of the journey of the human heart. Because the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. And the reason why I fail God so often and don't follow through on what I want to follow through on is because of my heart. And that's often the issue for all of us, isn't it? Is the heart. But underneath that, the real hidden treasure of the book of Jonah is that it's ultimately all about God. If you took God out of Jonah's story, his story wouldn't make sense. And that's the truth for you and I as well. If you took God out of our story, it wouldn't make sense. And so God said to Jonah, we looked at it last week, go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a horrible city in Assyria. It was full of darkness. And Jonah said, do you know what God? I think I'll go the opposite direction to Tarshish, which was in southern Spain and more like Hawaii. Nineveh, Hawaii and he went that way. And ultimately, he went that way because of his heart. And we're called to face darkness, whether it's externally or more often than not, internally in our own human hearts. But because we fear that, we turn and we find escape somewhere else rather than face the darkness that is within our own human hearts. And we're in this season that the church calls Lent. How many of you have got your Lent calendar? Brilliant, if you've not got one, there's one at the back. It gives you things to do or not do every day. Don't be legalistic about it. Use it as a tool, not as a rule, okay, to conform you. Okay, just use it if it helps you. But Lent is traditionally associated with a season where we look at the darkness within us to prepare and to contrast the glorious light of the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And so God calls each of us to face darkness, but we, like Jonah... Run away. And God sent three things to catch up with Jonah and to get a hold of his heart. He sent a storm. Within the storm, he sent a captain who knocked on his door and said, What on earth are you doing? We looked at that last week. And he also sent a fish. And we're going to look at the storm and the fish today. And before we do that, we need to clear something up. If you look at this photograph, this is a photograph that somebody did in the church. (laughs) Jonah inside the mouth of a huge fish. So this, the one I want to ask is, could it be true that this, is, that this really happened? That, that a man was swallowed by a fish, traditionally a whale, but it never says that in the Bible. Traditionally a fish, let's call him a whale, all right? Because then we'll all feel a bit more, you know, a bit more secure. Um, <laughs> could it be true that a man could be swallowed by a whale and survive? Now, there will be two groups of people here. One of you, one group will say, there is no way that that could happen at all. This is just a figurative, symbolic story. There is no way that could happen. There's an, and and you'll say, you may say, that's the problem with the Bible. It's full of myths and fairy tales and legends and nobody could believe that. You're not asking us to swallow that, are you? The second group are those of you that are here and you say, of course it's literal. Of course it's literal. That's the only meaning. It's a literal story. There's nothing else to it. Both of you have got a problem which we'll look at in a moment. Now, could it be possible that a man could be swallowed, or a woman, by a fish, by a whale, let's say, and survive? It could be possible. It has happened. The most famous person is a guy called James Bartley, who in 1863, uh, whilst at sea on a whaling ship, the ship capsized, uh, and he, he went overboard, and he was swallowed by a whale. And they got the whale, they caught the whale, they cut the whale open, and there was James Bartley, alive, not well, but alive, And this is what he said in his own words. I remember very well the moment when the whale threw me into the air. Then I was swallowed and found myself enclosed in a firm, slippery channel whose contractions forced me constantly downwards. gets very graphic, all right, so if you're squeamish. Then I found myself in a very large sack. By feeling about, I realised I'd actually been swallowed by a whale and was in the stomach. I could still breathe, though with much difficulty. I had a feeling of insupportable heat, and it seemed I was being boiled alive. Bartley then lost consciousness until he was found. And they found him, and, and he lived to tell the story. Now, in my research for this on the internet, I've found some advice in case you're ever swallowed by a whale. <laughs> And I have to tell you, this is so British, it's not true. All right. If you're not British, you'll understand. This is the stereotype caricature. John Cleese, let's have a cup of tea if we're swallowed by a whale approach. Let me read it to you. So if if when you're in the summer and when you're swimming off the coast of Cornwall, if this happens to you, remember what you learnt here this morning in church. Once inside, sit tight and try not to touch anything, if at all possible. So British, isn't it? Gastric processes are invasive, and skin does not recover well from encounters with digestive fluids. The process by which gastric acid handles food is slow, and wearing clothing, especially of the synthetic variety, is likely to buy you some time. So just note that, okay? Escape from the belly of a whale, aside from simple survival, may be far more difficult as the majority of whales have complex digestive systems. There's also the constant intake of seawater that results from their feeding processes. Unless someone is looking for you or you have a very large cutting implement... And a strong stomach, you may have to be satisfied with simply surviving until starvation takes you or good fortune saves the day. Then this is the sentence for me that just, this is so British. If all else fails, you might consider using pepper. That's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Or a small fire to smoke your way out. (laughs) Then have a cup of tea and everything will be fine. And that kind of British approach to being swallowed by a whale. But if you are of the persuasion that it's no way is this true, that this story is just an allegory or a a symbolic metaphorical thing, then what you are doing is you are closing your mind off to the possibility that there, there could be anything beyond what you see, know, or have experienced. And that's dangerous. But if you are the group of people that say, it's, true, it's literal, there's no other meaning to it, you can't look at it in any other way than a literal story, you also are closing off your mind to the hidden meanings that I believe lie beneath the story. So if you ask me which one is it, I would say both and it doesn't matter. What matters is we come on a journey where we are open to what God wants to say through the story and through the other meanings underneath the story, are you with me? So I want to invite you this morning to come on a journey with me and we will explore what God could be saying to us through the sending of the storm and through the sending of the fish. If you go back to chapter 1 of Jonah, just to recap a little bit, but also to add in some new information. When it says in verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. The Hebrew words there, the implication of the text is that he charted the ship. He paid for the ship and the journey from there to Tarshish would have taken about a year. So Jonah is a man of means. He's a wealthy man who can afford to run away from God for a year. Or so he thinks. He can afford to charter the ship, to pay for it, lock, stock and barrel and have it for a year to try and escape from the presence of God. So at the start of chapter 1 he's a man of means who can afford to go in the opposite direction to the one that God wants him to go, but at the the beginning of chapter 2, he is a man going nowhere, isn't he? He's not dead, and he's not really alive, and there is nothing he can do to get himself out. And there are two things that did this to Jonah. One was the storm, and one was the fish. If you read chapter 1, during the storm, the sailors, it says, threw the cargo over the side of the ship. Cargo is symbols of wealth. They are symbols of stuff. It's amazing when you go through tough times, how important the stuff becomes or doesn't become. You see, when you're going through storms, how many of you know what's valuable suddenly becomes invaluable, doesn't it? And what's invaluable becomes valuable. And when you go through storms, you realise what really is important to you and what you're really made of as well. Because Jonah, through this process of the storm, is stripped of everything that he has or he owns or he relies on. And when you're a man or a woman who rely on your wealth, your power, your health, your means, your ability, and you find out that all those things are gone, then you find out who you really are. Then you find out who you really are. It's like Jesus on the the boat with the disciples. They went through a storm and it revealed what lies beneath. He says, you're doubting. You don't have faith in me because we're going through a storm. It reveals what is really going on inside a person. And so we're going to look at these two things, the storm and the fish. Now, the problem that you and I have is going to be with this statement. God sent the storm. It says it clearly in chapter 1, verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind and such a violent storm. Let's pause there. Does that mean that every storm that happens in our world literal or not is sent by God absolutely not I don't believe that so I don't believe that what's happening in Japan has been sent by God in some kind of judgment on capitalism or on any other thing I don't believe that there will be people that will be saying that all around the internet please be discerning when you look because it's on the internet does not make it true you understand that don't you and I don't believe that. I don't believe that every single storm is sent by God. I do not believe that God is that kind of God. And I also don't believe that when people say, oh yeah, all this, all this is happening, nothing's changed in heaven. I don't believe that neither. I think a lot has changed in heaven. I think when, when there is weep, weeping and despair on the earth, then there is sorrow in heaven. Just as when there's rejoicing, there's rejoicing. God feels the pain and, 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 and the, the, the trauma of all of that. But I do believe that when we start to look at the storm, I do believe that actually it's not the physical storm that really God is interested in in our lives here. Although I think that happened to Jonah, I think what God is after is He's after us looking at those things in our life that you could equate as a storm, and the idea that sometimes God is the author of that storm for a reason. God has sent that storm to use it in your life and my life for a reason. Not every storm is sent by God, but Every storm that happens, God can use, and sometimes God sends the storm. Now, we need to look at this by looking at some theology. You're up for some theology this morning? Is that all right? What on earth is that? We're going to look at a doctrine that is um, a doctrine of just sets of beliefs. We know about salvation, atonement, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit. This is a doctrine that doesn't get a lot of press. The old word for it is called the doctrine of chastening, or another word, a new word, would be discipline. And it's this idea, chastening means to teach, educate, or to correct, disciplinary correction. It runs throughout the Bible. The famous passage is in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to that with me, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 12. And it's pretty clear, to be honest, here, where it says this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines, listen, those he loves. Just pause there with me. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Do you, do you sense that this doesn't sit right in our modern culture? It doesn't, it's not getting a lot of amens here this morning as I'm reading through this. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Did we? I can remember being disciplined by my father when I was about 11 years of age. I was caught shoplifting. All right, I have stopped doing that now. Can I just say that? And my father disciplined me. And in those days, you know, it, it, I couldn't sit down for a long time. And I'm not sure I respected him for it at the time. And then there's the classic statement, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. And you go, yeah, right. But actually, now as a father, I know that that was true. It did hurt him much more than it hurt me. But at the time, I didn't like it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. There is a doctrine called the doctrine of chastening or discipline, where God disciplines, listen, those he loves. And the implication of the the words of that are those who he knows and who know him have a relationship with him. God loves everyone. But the implication of the text is those who have a relationship with him, who would say they are followers of God, they are the ones that he disciplines. Now let me say a few things about chastening or disciplining. It is inevitable. It is a sign of God's love for us. The worst thing God can ever do to you or me is to take his hand off us. When God takes his hand off us, we're in big trouble. See, Jonah might have thought that he was in trouble in the storm and in the belly of the fish. He wasn't in trouble because that was the hand of God on his life. Because he loves him. The storm was a sign of God's love for Jonah. The trouble would come if God said, all right, Jonah, you're running your own direction. I've sent a storm, I've sent a captain, I've sent a fish. You're still not listening. Do you know what? Go your own way. I'll take my hand off you. You're on your own, son. That's the worst place we could ever be in, isn't it? How many of you have been through some situations and you think, I think God's involved. I can feel the hand of God, but I don't like it. I don't understand it. I'm confused. Anyone ever been there? Let me tell you, that's a sign of God's love for you. He loves you too much to let you go. He loves you too much to let you run away. He has so much good stuff for you. And, and it's, not, it's not because he's, he's grudging. You know, Sometimes we discipline because we're hurt a little bit. And all the best fathers in the world, we're mixed motives, aren't we? Do you know what I mean? And sometimes we're just angry with our kids and we discipline. Yes, we love them, but there's a bit of that in it as well. There's none of that with God. There's no grudge when God disciplines us. There's no grudge because he doesn't need to get even. He got even at the cross. Our disobedience is not enough for God to turn his back on us. So when we're disobedient to God and when we turn away from God and when we do our own thing, God doesn't say, right, I'm going to get you back. He's not like that. His discipline is perfect. Perfect. It's also progressive. You see, he will start, his preferred route of discipline is internal. How many of you know what this is? It's not a trick question. It's the Bible. This is his preferred route of discipline. That's why it's so important we read our Bible. Bring it with you. You know, I know some of you make notes when when, when we talk. And to be honest, I do not retain anything that I don't write down. Very little. And you may be blessed that you can retain it all. That's great. But if you can't, write it down. Listen to it again. Because the Bible is God's preferred route of disciplining us. That through the word and through the spirit, God chastens us and helps us and shapes us and shows us how to live. If we don't listen to that, God will move to the second level, which is external chastening. He needed to send Jonah a storm. Because Jonah wasn't listening to the word of the Lord anymore. Chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Then God's still speaking, Jonah's not listening. So God says, Jonah, I love you too much to let you go. You're not listening. You're not listening. I'm going to need to get your attention. So he sent a storm. Chastening is also confusing. When you're going through it, you don't know what's going on. You don't know where God is, where God isn't. Is this God? Is it the devil? Is it, what, is it the cheese I ate last night? You haven't got a clue. It's confusing. It's also temporary. It will pass. Why don't you say it with me this morning? It will will pass. It will pass. It will pass. The storm is sent to wake Jonah up. It won't kill you. If you're going through a storm that is sent by God because he wants to get your attention, it won't kill you. It is meant to wake you up, to prepare you for the next gift of God, which is then God then sent a fish. Chapter 1 verse 17. Now, traditionally, we know it as a whale. It doesn't ever say whale in the Bible. That's not the point. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Listen, Jonah was swallowed and covered. He was preserved. No storm affected Jonah once he was in the fish. The whale took him down. But ultimately, the whale also took him and delivered him to Nineveh, didn't he? So Jonah gets on a boat bound for the opposite direction because there will always be a boat bound for the opposite direction when you run away from God. And God gets him out of the boat with a storm, down into the depths, into the fish, down into the depths and he then delivers him to the place where he wants him to be all along, which was Nineveh. God is so phenomenal, isn't he? And that provision of the fish was not judgment. It was not judgment. You see... Jonah was in a safe place now. He was in a season of being hidden. He was in a season of being prepared. He was in a season where everything else was stripped away. No cargo, no prophetic ministry, no job, no family, no house, nothing. Just him and God. And when God gets us to that place, he can get to our hearts. Because there's so much junk and clutter that God can't get to the real heart of the issue, which is our heart. Now, here's something else to think about. I wonder when we have storms and fish, Okay, when we have storms or situations which threaten to engulf us, I wonder how many of us pray and cry out something along this kind of line. God, save me, rescue me, release me, deliver me, get me out of here. What about if the storms and the fish that we pray to be rescued from are actually what God sends to save us? What about if the storm and the fish are actually God's method of salvation for us? How many of you pray, rescue me from this tough job? What about if that's sent to save you? Get me out of this really difficult situation. Let me get, get me out of this thing. I don't like it. I don't like it. What about if God says, I know you don't like it, but endure it as discipline because I love you. Because actually what you're trying to escape from is what I've sent to save you. <laughs> and then somewhere in the next three days, it says from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. We don't know whenabouts in the process, Jonah prayed. I wonder if it was as, as he was just going past the tonsils <laughs> or, or just sliding down the backside of the edge of the tongue. Or down the esophagus, I don't even know where the whales have esophaguses, but the throat. Or, or as he went into the stomach, or as he saw the sign, bowels ahead. At some point, at some point in the fish, Jonah prays to the Lord his God. What would your prayer be? My prayer would be short and not very cultured. Do you know what I mean? It would be something like, help! Something like that. Jonah's prayer wasn't like that. Let me read it to you. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. See, he's not praying, help, get me out, is he? He's praying a whole different level of prayer. Let's talk about this prayer for a minute. Let me say a few things. These words aren't original. All these words are from the Psalms. They're not original words. They're from Psalm 18, 42, 31, 69, 40, 50, and a few others. And the Psalms are either laments, which are our kind of prayers. Oh God, this is so horrible. You're so horrible to me and I don't like it and I want to get out of it. That's a lament. All right? They're either laments or they're thanksgivings thank you God I remember you you're great look at what you've done look at how you saved me my life was ebbing away but you lifted me up this is not a lament this is a psalm of thanksgiving so so Jonah in the belly of the fish is not crying out to God oh God oh God oh God woe is me woe is me he actually does cry out to God but out of his crying out to God it becomes a psalm of thanksgiving they're not original words You see, there are two wills in this story. There's Jonah's will and God's will. How many of you know that's a clash? Isn't it? And when Jesus speaks of the Jonah story, he talks about it as a sign. And the sign is that Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, which is a sign of death and resurrection. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you really want to live, the only way is to die. Because the only way you live, in the way God's intended, is for you to die to yourself, to your own ambition, to your own ego, to to your own desires. And in death, you will experience life like you've never experienced before. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't produce any fruit. And Jonah had to die. He had to die to himself in order to find himself. He had to die to his smallness and to his pettiness and to his selfishness. And he had to die to that myth in his mind that there's a place you can go to to escape from God. Because he says it himself as David said, he says it in the psalm, even in the depths you are there. These words are also focused. It says, you held me, O oh God, your ways and breakers. He accepted God's discipline in his life. I wonder how many of us have had experience in our life where something has happened and you said, you know what, it was him. He did this to me. She did this to me. They did this to me. And actually, it was God. And until we accept God's chastening in our life, nothing will change. Nothing. Because this was the point when he said, this was you that did this, God. You did this to get my attention. You held me down. You put me in the fish. You did it to get my attention. You see, when we stop blaming, excusing, justifying Running or hiding, then everything changes. And it may be that you've had something bad that's happened to you in your life and somebody else did it. Understand that. But there has to come a moment when we stop hiding behind that and where we own our own confession and we say, That has happened to me. That's part of who I am. But God, your truth is different to that. That does not define me or keep me locked up in that. I have to actually turn and face the fact that you are my God, that you are working in my life. And until I turn away from that position of blaming and hiding and pretending and justifying and excusing and turn and face God, nothing will really change. That's what happened to Jonah. And these words are really heartfelt. In verse 4 and 7, he's talking about the things that he's lost. He's been banished. You know, he's lost that sense of, of, of who he is and and there's a little bit like, I think this is like his country and western moment. Do you know what I mean by that? How many of you like country and western music? Because we have a ministry team that can pray for you, every one of you, at the end of this thing. And the thing about country and western music, and I went to, I've been to a lot of country and western clubs in America when I've been out in the south of America. And I love them. I love it just for the whole culture. I think it's fantastic. What I love most is they're so depressing and people love it. Let's go and sing about when I lost my dog and my cat and my wife and my mother and my brother and I've lost this and I've lost that and my achy breaky heart and all this. And they come out feeling great because they just went in and reminded themselves of what they've lost. And this is like Jonah's country and western moment. But then it becomes passionate because in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what i have vowed i will make good salvation comes from the lord now you need to know jonah does not know whether he will be rescued or whether he will live he doesn't know that he's in the middle of his story he doesn't know that the fish is about to vomit him he doesn't know that and yet in the middle when he's stripped down he begins to say god lord, i I hung on to all these idols, my own self, my own ego, my own ambition, my own need to escape. I clung on to it all and I missed out all the goodness that you had for me. But I'm not going to do that any longer because what I vowed, I will make good because salvation belongs to the Lord. That's phenomenal, isn't it? It's absolutely unbelievable. Now, did Jonah repent? I'm not sure he did. We're going to look at that a bit more next week. I'm not sure he really did repent, but I think he did turn to God, and they're different. You see, repentance at one level means turning into the other direction, facing the other direction. And he did do that. He was running away from God, and now he's running towards God. But God's still got a lot of work to do on this fellow's heart, hasn't he, on yours and mine? So I don't know whether he fully repented, but, but he did turn towards God, and he's now running towards God, not away from God. That's a good thing. Perhaps we need a new way of thinking about prayer. How many of us have ever felt guilty, inadequate, or inferior when it comes to prayer? Yeah. Perhaps we need a new way of thinking. You see, Jonah's words weren't original, so why do we think ours always have to be? There are some times when we don't have the words, let's use other people's. That's why the Bible is so fantastic. One of the reasons. You see, words have a way of becoming flesh. The Hebrew for word means devar. That, well, that, that's the word. And it means two things. It means word and it means event. And so it, the Hebrew understanding of a word is that a word doesn't just convey an idea, but a word, if you linger with it long enough, can create and can become flesh. Huh. So God said, let there be light, and there was... Light. Let there be light. God said, let there be light idea, and it became flesh event. See, John chapter 1, Jesus, the word, Logos, revealed word, became flesh. If you linger with the word long enough, it becomes flesh. Now, that's true of God, it's also true of other things as well. Some of us have had words linger so long in our mind that they've become flesh. They've created an event because we lingered with the words too long. I'm rubbish, I'm a failure, they hate me, they don't like me, they've got it in for me and we've lingered so long with the words that the word has created itself flesh, become truth and we can't move it and so it really matters what kind of words are lingering around in our head, really matters because those words become flesh. And so at the end of Job chapter 1, you know the story of Job chapter 1, where Job, I mean, Jonah's having a bad day. Job has a horrendously bad day. Loses everything. And yet he can say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Those are the words he chooses to linger in his head. Those are the words that are going to create themselves as flesh. I wonder how many of us, and I know I am terrible at this, we linger on all the wrong kind of words, don't we? Anyone know what I'm talking about? What I've lost, what they've done to me, how they've abused me, how they've mistreated me, how they've overlooked me. And we linger, 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 and the words create themselves as flesh. And we have to stop that, turn away from that, and face God. Say, God, you held me. Your hand is on me. Let your words be the words that create flesh in my mind. A guy called Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in America, made this statement, which I think is brilliant. He said this, it's direction, not intention, that determines our destination. It's our direction, not our intention, that determines our destination. See, many of us have said, we want to be close to God, we want to know God, and we want to do this, and we want to do that. This is our intention, but we're running in our own direction. And it will never happen unless we change direction and we run towards God. And I'm going to ask Mark and Vicky to come up in the band. And they're going to sing a song over you this morning and to you. And this this song is is from a band that's just become just really important to me. I just love this band's music. We've used a few of their songs the last few months. But what I want you to do this morning is to listen to the music and listen to the words. And listen to the call that is coming out of this song. And the chorus just says, we will run to you. We will run to you. And I just want to encourage you this morning. You you know, you you don't have to be um, a total, like, bad person and, do you know what I mean? Never come to church and never, you know, you carry old people across the road. You leave them in the middle and run off and, you know, you're all this wickedness. You don't have to be that kind of person to be running away from God. You know that, don't you? In fact, some of the people that God finds the hardest to reach are sat in the church pews or seats. You see, we can have run away from God in lots of areas of our life. And our direction is me. And that's where we're set. And God says, but I love you too much for that. So I'll send a storm. And I'll send a fish. And I'll send whatever I can to reach you. Because I love you. And I want you back. So listen to the song and let the Holy Spirit do His work. Because it can't be my words. It can only be the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to return to God today. Just like Jonah began to do in Jonah chapter 2. Let's pray. You know, you don't have to be in a storm for this to apply to you. You don't have to be in a fish for this to apply to you. Because actually God is speaking to you through his word. That's always his preferred route but if you know this morning that you know there is an area of my life where I've been running from God and I've been turned, and I want to turn and I want to run towards God and I want to come back to God then you know that you don't need me to tell you that you know that and I'm not going to tell you what to do because that's about intention but I am going to call you to a new direction stop running away and to turn and face and come back to God so if that applies to any of you here this morning, would love to pray for you. not going to embarrass you by bringing you out, but if you want to just stand with me, and then we'll pray for you this morning. So if you know that there's an area of your life that you're running away from God, you want to run back to God, you want to come back to God, you want to turn back to God in that area, then just stand with me. And let me pray for you right now. You just engage with God yourself. Father, I want to just pray for these people here and just want to ask you God to thank you that you you love us so much and you know that sound of hearts returning to you is the most precious sound in your ears I believe and God I just really pray for these people here that you will just flood them now with your spirit that you will encourage them and strengthen them and let them know that you love them that you've you're not not turn your back on them, and you're not holding grudges and any of that. You just are so, you're like that father that just embraces the prodigal coming home, not with a scold, not with a telling off, not with a I told you so, but just with love and with passion. So, Lord, I pray that as our hearts come to you, as our hearts turn again to you, Lord, your heart is already to us. And so, God, I pray for these folks that, Lord, that they would know your peace, they would know that they've made a decision in terms of direction. And Lord, as they keep running towards you, not away from you, that Father, you will show them who they are. You will bring them back to themselves. God, you'd even bring them home. There'd be that sense of homecoming in their lives, I pray, where they'd know that they're loved by you. So Father, would you just encourage their hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your seats. Mark, if you keep playing for me. i just got a final thought here this morning before we, we finish that, You know, at the end of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Love that. Love the Bible. So great. Here's my question. If the fish vomited Jonah onto the ground, what did Jonah smell like? I'm a bit weird, aren't I, the way I look at the Bible. I want to suggest to you, and this is complete preacher's poetic license and some of you who are Bible police are going to have a field day with this so let's just take that out of the question right now this is not in the Bible but just go with me for a little bit if it was whale vomit it could have smelt like this because a whale rarely vomits a sperm whale rarely vomits big whale, lots of stomachs, could have been that but actually, what happens is that when it coughs, it coughs because it's irritated by something in its system which shouldn't be there. And Jonah would qualify as that, okay? And so what it does is it, is it, it kind of goes, and it vomits. It vomits out a black, gooey substance. And when that hits the surface on the beach or whatever, or the land, in the sun, it becomes waxy and it solidifies. And it's got a name which you might have heard of. It's called Ambergris. Anyone heard of it? It's so valuable and so precious that a lady found a lump of ambergris on the beach and sold it for 80,000 pounds. Heston Blumenthal, that chef, okay, he uses it often in, in food, if you're into that. But it's really, its main precious ingredient is that there is an ingredient in it which they use in only the most expensive perfumes like Chanel No. 5. This is poetic license. Imagine if he comes out smelling of vomit, but actually it's ambergris. Could it be that as Jonah goes into Nineveh, this is interesting, as he goes into Nineveh with not a great prophetic word, to be honest, we're going to look at next week, eight words, you better sort your lives out or God's going to get you. That's basically all he said. In a moment, everybody in Nineveh, from the king down to the cattle, repents and turns to God. Wow. Could it be That when you and I go through storms and we go through the depths and God strips us back and we come to who we really are and we get rid of all the cargo and all the junk and we turn back to God, could it be that as we're released to the next bit that we come out smelling of a whole different fragrance? And before you think, oh, you've totally lost your mind now, there is a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of God for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing if you never want to smell great for God keep running away from Him if you never want to smell great for God Don't deal with the darkness in your own heart. If you never want to smell great for God, keep blaming other people. Keep excusing. Keep justifying. It's fine. But I tell you what, if in your spirit you say, I want to smell great for God, I want to carry something different into the city, the only way is returning to God and letting God deal with the issues in your heart. And as Jonah gets... Vomited into Nineveh, I believe, smelling with a whole different fragrance. The impact is phenomenal in the city, as we'll look at next week. But here's the other thing, I think, as he walks into that city, he thinks, do you know what? I, I turned my back on God, I ran away from God. But do you know what? God never let me go. Isn't that amazing? A few years ago, there was a young lad, he lived in South Florida, and gets out of the house one day and goes to swim in the lake by his house. His dad sees him gets in and as he gets in the lake, he also notices an alligator slip into the lake from the other side of the lake and they're destined for each other in the middle of the lake. The dad runs out and he grabs hold of the son but the alligator's grab hold of his legs and he's holding on to the arms of this alligator, of his son and the alligator's got and there's this tug of war between the father and the alligator for his son and then a farmer driving past sees what's happening gets out of his truck brings a gun shoots the alligator kills the alligator alligator lets go of the son take the son to hospital he's scarred with the marks of the alligator someone comes to visit him and says can I see your scars he says oh yeah you can and he shows him the scars of his legs and says, but can I show you these scars as well he shows them his arms and there are the marks of his father who never let him go and he so said, you and I carry scars in our legs don't we we carry scars of life. We carry scars that other people and situations have done to us. We also carry the scars of our own disobedience and our own stupidity, don't we? But we also carry other scars as well because we carry the imprint of the hand of God who never, ever lets us go. And I think as Jonah went into the city smelling of a different fragrance, fragrance, he also went in there thinking, do you know what? God is so amazing. He never let me go. He never, ever let me go. That's our God, isn't it? And I want you to know this morning, as we walk out of here in a few minutes, yes, we carry scars with us. But if you look close enough, many of us have got other kinds of scars, haven't we? Where we know that God has not let go of us. That's why I love God so much. Why don't we stand? We're going to sing a final song, which just kind of is an anthem that just says, this is what we're about. This is God who never, ever lets us go. No matter what the storm is, no matter what the situation is, God never, ever lets us go. And as we sing it, why don't we say to God, and God, just as you never let me go, I ain't ever going to let you go neither. Is that all right? Let's sing.